The book of Joel talks repeatedly about the day of the Lord. And it's, it's kind of asking the question on a regular basis, will you survive it? So friend, you, just think to yourself, when the Lord appears to judge good and evil, will you survive? Hearing from the book of Joel earlier, you surely were struck by some of those words, those descriptions, the warning of God's word to his people. And you need to know that it's all true. What, what he was referring back to was true. What he was prophesying about, that came true. So what, we, what he then later talks about will come true. And it asks you, if this happens, and if this happens, and if that will happen, will you survive? Joel's a part of a greater portion of Scripture. It's called the Minor Prophets. These are shorter prophetic books that are often overlooked because they're small, they're poetic, no one really likes poems, <laughs> they're difficult to capture, and they seem otherworldly. But make no mistake, what's true in Joel is true for us. There are things all around us that show us that this world is, is not stable, as it appears in this book. It's, it doesn't seem to be under control when everything just goes out of control, and it even feels threatening to our very lives. From rioting to flooding to fires to rampant diseases and wars killing generations of people, the world you and I are given the keys to is showing to not be stable under our command. The argument is of this book is that this ought to point us to the one who is stable, to the one who is sovereign and in control of everything, to the one who is powerful, but Scripture also warns us that there will be a time when Christ Jesus will return to all of this and he will wreak havoc on all that is wicked against him. Joel tells us that the glimpses of awfulness that you and I experience all the time is, is actually weak in comparison to what's to come. Now, the structure of Joel is fascinating. It, it, goes, it goes back and forth with land being devastated and armies devastating everyone. I give you a, a small outline on your outline uh, in your bulletin. I hope that kind of helps to, to show the oscillating pictures of terror and destruction that lead all the way up to vengeance. There, first, there's land that's desolated. You see that there. And then there's an army that overwhelms people. And then that army is crushed. And then that land is rejuvenated. And then there's a promise of something coming down to bless everyone. And then Vengeance is finally wrecking all evil. But the beauty, the mystery of survival in all of this is actually right there in the, in the middle of the book of Joel. You see that? I, I made it red. Uh, and this is normal for this type of prophecy, this type of prophetic genre, where the answer to survival isn't necessarily in the beginning or in the end, but actually it's like he's hovering around something to where the point of all of this is right there in the middle for you to see. You might skip over it because there's, there's terrifying things to keep reading on to, but, he, but he's holding these things up to where our attention goes to the middle for the answer. And it ought to be normal for you. The answer to your own survival isn't from the top of your head, meaning your mind, or even the ability of your hands and feet to help you survive. We, we often put our survival in those things. I can outsmart 
or I can outwork. But here it says to be warned, for the day of the Lord is coming, and it will be horrifying because of what is on the inside of people that matter. Look firstly at desolation and revitalization. You see these, these two things, talking about land and Chapter 1, verses 1 through 20, and then chapter 2, verses 21 through 27. These two kind of go together. Joel describes in our chapter 1 something that has happened. He's looking back. He's reminding people of something that has happened. And he describes a a previous onslaught, a plague of locusts that invade. You can imagine these grasshoppers have just completely taken over the world. An invasion. My parents, uh, for a little bit, lived in a town called Sulphur, Oklahoma. So for those of you not from Oklahoma, it's a town, it's a town way south. And the summer of 2013, uh, they had a grasshopper invasion in that entire area. My parents had like 10 acres, and you know, they, they have fo- pin- fence posts on the side. You've seen like barbed wire fence posts where it's red, a majority of it, but then the top, it has a top of silver. There was one invasion this one week where there were just thousands and thousands of grasshoppers. I was there for it. And the next day you woke up and the paint from these posts had been eaten away. Grass wasn't good enough. Flowers didn't stand a chance. They were even eating paint off the side of houses. And Joel is saying, you remember that? You remember that invasion that destroyed everything in its midst? He opens with an urgent call to his listeners to recognize what has happened, and the elders are told to pay attention and to teach their children, and their children and their children, that the wrath of God is even worse than that. Look at verse 4. It says, when the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust has left, the hopping locust has eaten. What the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Everything is being desolated. A caravan of catastrophe. Yet, by God's grace, he tells the people in the midst of this how to act. Verse 5, he paints a portrait of a popular noble man. Verse 8, he gives a haunting image of someone who's lost a family. And in verse 11, he gives a reaction of how a worker is supposed to work. But let me, let me just isolate these three things. Because what he does is he says, it's going to be awful And it's coming for these type of people. Who are these type of people? The first one is, you could say, a socialite, a popular person, a noble man. It says, awake, you drunkards, and weep, and wail, you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. You can imagine here, the image is obvious, someone mastered by alcohol. And another, someone who's mastered by society, the drinkers of the wine. They do these things to bring them pleasure. They do these things to escape reality. They seek pleasure in other things that they can bring on themselves or other people that they can surround themselves with. Their their social life is actually their own salvation. But look at verse 7. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and blown it down, pricked apart bit by bit, the word describes. Friends, the longing that you have to be mastered by something in this world will not survive. The longing that you have to surround yourself with a certain kind of people so that you can be happy and so that you can be fulfilled or so that you won't be alone, those will not survive. 
Do you long for pleasure and friends? Do you long for just not being left out? Do you long for the new phone, for the new car, the certain drink, or the certain adventure? God has you compare those things to this thing. And it says in verse 5, it'll be snatched away. The second illustration is what I'm going to call a family idolater. The people who worship their families. Not that anyone would ever do that. What does he say? He says, when the day of the Lord comes, lament like a virgin wearing a sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. It's a young woman who's had everything taken away. You can imagine announcements of the wedding being sent out. Ceremonies fully prepared. Everyone's coming dressed to the nine. The doors open as the aisle is prepared for her entrance. Yet in a devastating moment, the one she loves, gone. All the protection of family that maybe she was looking forward to is gone. All that she had prepared herself for, body and soul, gone. All the protection is now absent. So she puts on a sackcloth instead of a dress. And they don't sing songs, she wails. That wedding day is now a dark day on the calendar. The text says that those who have their hope, who have their satisfaction and joy in their families, have the ground dry up all around them. The condition here of teaching your children and their children and even their children, what you teach them is that family shouldn't be the point of your life. It shouldn't be the salvation of your own soul. Because a family tree, a last name, a new connection will not have you survived the day of the Lord. You will not stand before the Lord and say, but I have this. The third illustration is the worker. Verse 11, be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. You see the image of a man working in a field. A hard worker. But their job, their work, and their identity are all in the same. They don't trust the Lord to provide them. They're too busy. They need to work too hard. They have too much in front of them to do. Or even if you take it away from them, now they don't know who they are. But friend, think about it. Does your work, the the outcome of your labor, stand a chance against the day of the Lord? It's meant in jest, but the beginning of one of John Piper's most famous works is talking about a retired couple who spends their lives, the rest of their lives, collecting seashells. You know, they they did a lot of work before, but then they they finally made it. They retired, and they walk on the beach, and they spend their lives collecting seashells. And he gives the illustration at the end, what are you going to do when you meet your maker? Say, God, look at my seashell collection. And we go, that that is easily ridiculous. But in your eight to six, in your title, when people say, what do you do? Does, Does that mean that's who you are? I'm a farmer. I'm a pastor. I'm a mom. I'm a banker. It won't survive the day of the Lord. Joel exposes that there is an actual famine happening here. And the famine is actually not caused by the locusts on the fields, but by the plague of the spiritual locusts who have eaten away at the hearts of man. But, amazingly, look now at chapter 2. 
verses 21 through 27. Joel shows God now being compassionate. With judgment pending, Joel shows divine intervention on the Lord's part. He, he prophesies that God will be merciful to Judah. They'll be revived. They'll be brought back up like once was dried land. They'll be fruitful again. Sorrow will turn to joy when their God overwhelms them. What once was barren and wasted, God will act wonderfully to those who trust Him. And How will God do this? Look at chapter 2, verse 27, where it says, You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else, and my people shall never again be put to shame, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all the flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Joel recalls them from Exodus, where there was a promise there for God to be with His people. And there's this broadcast now forward to where God will promise to to dwell with His people by His Spirit coming out. So you have this haunting balance of the day of the Lord will wreak havoc. But there is hope for some. A second thing you see in the text, going back to the beginning of chapter 2, is there is a, a new invasion. So once was locusts, now it appears that there is an army. And they will eliminate things. Previously, he told everyone to lament and beg for forgiveness, where he vividly and unexpectedly calls people of Jerusalem to face a new threat that is about to bear down upon their walls. If you read along, there are more haunting images pop up. I, I read it earlier, but surely, surely it's not even worse than locusts eating. They've already eaten everything, after all. They've destroyed everything, but Joel shows that it'll be even worse. There's a new threat in chapter 2. There's an army now that comes, and it's an army of great warriors, and they're not coming for food. Here is an advancing army of soldiers set to crush a city. Both chapters have armies, if you will, but chapter 2, we see that this is the Lord's army coming down violently on evil before them. It's a day of reckoning, and he's showing that no one can survive it. This awesome, expressive, intense storytelling. In chapter 1, he brings the attention from the past. And now in chapter 2, he's prophetically using these images to heighten the attention of the future. What's to come? But why? Why is he telling these people this? Why do you and I need to read it and pay attention? This seems so long ago. And zooming in on the terror unfolding, this book teaches God's people what they will need to be clinging to in the most desperate of times. Joel, though not much is known of him, is certainly, a great, is certainly in a great time of need. And God will have that time of need to fully show his greatness, to fully show his glory, to pour out his wrath, and to rescue with all mercy. But by the providence of God, this book remains timeless for us. We kind of don't know when exactly it was written. We don't know much about the person Joel. But man, you read this and you look around and you go... Ah, this is for today too. When the Bible shows us something that's devastating, it's calling us to pay attention to it, not gloss over it. The locust invasion and the army's invasion is a picture of the coming day of the Lord. Now this phrase, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, not the Lord's day, that's today, but the day of the Lord. What's this mean? The day of the Lord is a time... When the, when the Lord's patience will fully come to an end. 
it's this apocalyptic picture of there will be a time when God himself comes and destroys evil and fully rescues his own. It's the end. It's not almost the end, it's the very end. The day of the Lord explains the day that unveils his character even more beautifully than before, where we see his might, we see his power, we see his holiness. And it is terrifying. Joel describes it like a destructive army with power that destroys animals, people, and even the earth. A vivid picture of an army, think of it, leaping on mountaintops, having precision to never leave their duty to destroy and to ruin everything, everywhere. Everything winds up either dead in this passage or wanting to be dead where this invasion is devastating. But the book isn't just describing this devastation. It's a warning for you and me. And the warning is God will destroy things that we trust so that we can fully see him for who he is. You might read this book of the Bible and think that it doesn't really describe you. It's not really coming for you. But friend, go back to the, to the three illustrations that Joel gave in chapter one. The family man, the socialite, the worker. Who is God's wrath coming for? Those who trust in those things. But, look at chapter 2, verse 20. Chapter 2, verse 20, it says, I'll remove the northerner far from you and drive him into the parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and the foul smell of him will rise for he has done great things. Amazingly, there's a, there's a turn, like almost the wheel keeps turning where this army invades, and now God is showing that this army will be removed. At first, the army was told to come and destroy everyone, but here the army will be removed far from the people. The army will be eliminated from God's people. What's happening is Joel is showing a balance of an invading army with a prophecy, with a prophecy of that army's removal to where people can survive now. There's a third thing happening within this book where there's now vindication and restoration. So you have, these, you have these two pictures. You have land, an army, and then that land being restored, and then that army being removed. And then those two images are actually going to catapult on an even more far away view of what will fully happen. You could almost say, hey, if you think this was bad, look at what God's going to do to restore that land. Hey, if you think that's awesome of how God is going to restore that land. Look at what God's going to do even in the future. Same with the army. Man, that was tough. But look at what he did for, did for his people. And if you think that was glorious, look at what he's going to do when he actually does return. I hope you see the arrangement of all this. Land destroyed with a promise of renewal. An army attacking with a promise of the army's removal. But there's something even greater happening and being promised here. Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32 show something that's breathtaking. Not only does God restore what's been lost by bringing rain, but God will now restore even more through something new to his people. And it won't be something that'll impact Judah's time. though It will in its own way, but it's talking about something that'll come much later in these people's lives. It'll impact ultimately all of creation. What God promises to do is to bring about his own vindication. Proof of his love toward his people will come about when he will pour out what it's said there, his spirit upon his people. And they'll know it 
through heavenly displays of power. Look at chapter 2, verses 28 through 30. And it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my... This is God. That I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even, um, even on the male and the female servants in those days, I will pour out my Spirit. And I will show you wonders in the heavens and on earth. Like water out of a container, God promises in the days ahead that He will pour out His Spirit. And His Spirit won't just go through then kings or prophets or priests, but the Spirit will fall down on all of His people. Even them and even them. And we know the outworking of all of this. That at the right time, years after this prophecy, at the right time, it was God the Father who sent the Son to live sinlessly, to die substitutionally, raise victoriously, preach prophetically, only to then ascend to the heavens, where He's now ruling and reigning over all, where then He and the Father would send His Spirit to God's people to convict them, to regenerate them, to dwell within them, foreseen and known at what is called Pentecost in the book of Acts, God's Spirit rem- remarkably and miraculously was poured out on those who began to profess and speak to one another the things of Christ. They began to profess Jesus the Messiah is the only one who can save, the only one who can stand against a force because it was Him who absorbed all of God's wrath for His people. They begin to profess that he is the one who is to be trusted in. So you see that Joel gives a prophecy of something that will happen, and then you see amazingly that that something did very much happen in the book of Acts, which in many ways allows you and I to look at chapters 1 and 2 and go, I need to trust what this word says, because it was true then, and it showed itself to be true 2,000 years ago, and I need to trust it even in 2023. In this text, God's people are to surrender to the Lord because judgment will come. And by doing so, they'll be vindicated before the Lord because judgment came on the one Messiah who took their place. So when the day of the Lord comes, because of their now testimony, as the Spirit is indwelling in them and testifying through them, by their testimony, the day of the Lord will actually be a very good day for them. Because they will have the right thing to say. You are mine, and I gave myself to you because I cannot be trusted on my own. I have nothing in me, around me, on me that can save me. And by this testimony from your spirit, you now accept me. Verse 32 says that all those whom the Lord calls will call upon the name of the Lord. And it says that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So when we hear this in one of the apostles' books in the New Testament, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, we clap at that, we pump our fists in the air, and we say, yeah! But don't miss the gravity. You're being saved from this. You're being saved from the wrath of God that will come against all sin. So those fist pumps in the sky, that adrenaline rush of the Lord being your Savior, it's even deeper than you can imagine. It's not just that you are being saved to him, but you are being saved from his wrath. Isn't it amazing? That lock 
is not only preventing people from going in and out, but it's also a great refuge for all of God's people. Not by might can we be saved, but by the profession of the Spirit inside of us. It's absolutely staggering. Dry land, it says, will be replenished, showing you and me what it means to be filled with God's Spirit. To be filled with God's Spirit means that you are restored to fruitfulness and abundance. Salvation is brought to God's people by the Spirit whom is graciously sent, by the Spirit graciously filling what once was dry, destroyed hearts, now to new life. But amazingly, he's not done. He prophesies about something that will come, and it did, but he's not then there. Armies came to destroy evil, and they did, but then the Lord promises to do away with them, and he did, where the prophecy of destruction of the invading army in in, uh, chapter 2, verse 20, is also fulfilled with a final prophecy in chapter 3, verses 1 through 21, where there's a prophecy there. This is the day of the Lord, where the Lord's vengeance against all the nations will pour out. The day of the Lord is like a like a broadcasted, expected day of God judging everyone, everywhere. Not just Israel's enemies, but everyone, everywhere. Calls them the nations. He gives reasons for this in chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. He describes the buildup of this war in chapter, or verses 9 through 16. Look at, look at verses 9 through 16. It is an incredible, like if you were going to make a movie out of this, it would be spectacular. But it, it fully wouldn't even bring in the actual tension here. Proclaim this among the nations, consecrate for war, stir up these mighty men, let all the men of war draw near, let them come up, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears, let the weak say, I'm a warrior, hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there, bring down your warriors, O Lord, let all the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. You, you can see the language here is he is rattling the swords for war. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, and their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near, and the valley of decision. You see what he's doing here is he's creating the scene of, of God almost warming up to those who he will pour out in. And in overwhelming, masterful, showing it suddenly changes. It it happens so fast. It's like an unnoticed breath. It so gently goes from warming up for war to a new scene where God is calmly with his people. I think in part because you don't need to know what it's going to be like when this battle happens. There are several battles talked about in the rest of Scripture, and the amazing battles are where God just shows up, and it's over. It does, you don't even need to see what the fighting is like, what the sword does, what the beheadings look like. He just shows up, and it happens. The armies that come forth, they just blow back in despair. We're here, he, for many verses, talks about this roar, this sickle, this noise. But then he says, so you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain. The picture turns to God going from the front lines of war to now dwelling with his people. 
God promises to dwell with his people after taking his enemies finally to desolation and destruction. There's almost this turn of vision here. And and we know this within the the context of, of the gospel's actual announcement that where it was portrayed previously in the Old Testament where God would dwell with his people through things like tents and tabernacles and temples. We see that it was Christ who came, the Son of God, and dwelled with them in perfect human form. And now he dwells with his people in the Spirit. But what this promises to do is that he will come again and dwell with them fully. Where you and I, what will heaven be like? Don't kid yourself with thinking, oh, we'll play baseball in heaven, or we'll have the grandest kitchen of all, or, you know, you can, happy, glad times. Friends, you'll be in the the presence of God himself. The most amazing thing that the Bible ever attributes to what is given to you is to be in the presence of the Lord. He dwells with his people, now by his spirit, but one day with him in his fullness. And so you look at this and you take a step back and you go, well, that's a lot that just happened in the book of Joel. You've got land, you've got armies, you've got prophecies, you've got apocalyptic, lit, apocalyptic showcases of a holy showdown between all of God's enemies and himself, and then he, then he finally just dwells with his people, and you need to take a step back and go, how, how, how did all of that happen? How can all of that happen? How can God be justified in pouring out his wrath on people and be justified in showing great mercy to his people? And here's where we let the structure of this text actually emphasize the point of what God wants us to know. How does all this happen? How can God warn, destroy, and then relent and bless his people? How are they spared from their sins what they deserve? How can there be a creation, a fall, and then blessings, and then a promise of evil finally being wiped off? Friend, let the shape and structure of Joel tell you. told you at the beginning, but in Old Testament texts, the answers to many mysteries or the point of many stories is often very much in the middle. Lots of language about pain and frustration, glory and goodness, all hovering around this particular announcement from the prophet where it says in chapter 2, verse 12, how will you survive in the day of the Lord? Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. In the midst of awfulness, impending doom, be comforted by this mighty warrior's words where he says, even now, you, right now, Return to him with all of your heart. Even now, in the midst of your waywardness or leaving, even now, return to him. Friends, you see the graciousness of God in moments like this, but in all scripture. Last week, it was portrayed like like a wandering, rebellious teenager. And what does God do? Come home. Come home. You need to be home. The point of everything Joel has said to his people has been lamentation for pain already endured and terror over the horrors of war that is yet to come. But in chapter 2, verses 12 through 19, the tone noticeably changes. That God's people are brought favor from God. And this is the center of the text, and it must be the center of your life. A life of coming back to your maker for refuge, for safety. In his presence, everything is good. 
Unlike the laments of chapter 1, this call from God contains the hope of forgiveness and restoration. And the message here is clear. Only a return to the Lord will restore these people from death now to life. And we see this in the fullness of Christ's own words to his own, where he, he looks out on this sinful world and he says, come to me. You see what makes God so unique from everyone else. I've given this illustration before, but some of you have gone to doctors, some of you have gone to counselors, some of you have just gone to friends, and, you, and you've needed help. You've needed help from a doctor, you need help from a friend, you needed someone to talk to about certain things, but, but none of those people have the audacity to look right at you and say, what you need more of is me. It's exactly what God does in his word to you, wayward person, to you, sinful, wandering person, as he says, you need more of me, come home. The idea of going to Jesus is in many ways a paradox because we know that he is actually the one who comes for us, doesn't he? Like the spirit being poured out, invading your life, taking desolate, a desolate soul to now fruitful land. That's what Jesus does. You remember the bride at the beginning of chapter 1, not seeing her bridegroom? Well, you and I have hope that it will be the groom who actually appears to us. Think of a typical Christian marriage. The groom is at the front, the bride is at the back, being escorted down. But in our case, and the good news of the Scriptures, there will be no doors opening to an empty room, but an entrance where we, by the Son, are presented to the Father. And he says, these are mine, and I've done well with them. The love of Christ frees you from this. Returning to the Lord frees you from the anguish that is all around in our life and theirs. From yourself and from your sin and freed from your selfishness and self-centeredness, we can focus on God and enjoy Him forever. But He's not done. Look at verse 13 of chapter 2. He doesn't just say, return to me. He gives helpful instruction of what we do when we get there. He says, rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. Joel called the people to respond by lamenting and wailing and waking up. Joel sounded the great alarm that we need to see that the future in light of the devastation in the past, but in God's grace, He tells these returning people what to do. Joel's great comfort comes to those who rend their hearts, not their garments. What a comforting word rend is. It's hard to say it with much vigor, though. You're not going to walk into a room and say, let me rend my heart to you. What it means is to tear off, to rip away, to pry out, and to give over. And it captures the emotions of people who are trying to make salvation work for themselves, often with garments, often with work often with talents or with connections or a last name. You want to give those things over to the Lord. The devastating effects of thinking, rightly pursuing the Lord in your religious walk is by earning His love through your own works. And what does God say to you here that you are to do? You're to rend your hearts and not your garments. The regenerating work of God does such a work in his people that he calls them to give their hearts to him. Think about it. He wants us to rend to him our hearts. 
For often we think the Bible is telling us to repair our hearts and then go to Him. To redo our hearts and then go to Him. To renovate our hearts. But here it just says, rend your hearts. Not anything else. The Old Testament several times calls on people to circumcise their hearts. To give over their hearts. To have their hearts purified. It says that it's to be cut off and cut out. Where this shows what true repentance is. Opposite of practical repentance. However fervently carried out. However loud and serious your sorrow may be, is no use if your heart is unchanged. Practical repentance, however passionate, passionately carried out, is of no use if the, if the heart is unchanged. But rather than being taken captive by society or family or work, God wants us to love and enjoy Him, knowing full well that He is trustworthy, faithful, and merciful in such a way that He would own, send His own Son to take our place on the cross to such a degree that He says, come home and give me your heart. You can imagine someone going to Him and saying, I'm done running. I'm done sinning. See the prodigal son saying, I'm I'm done. I have nothing. I just want to be under your care. One of my favorite things about the Bible is how it interlocks. And you you think about Pentecost and Acts interlocking with Luke, or Joel, where Joel is quoted... At Pentecost, Peter is quoting from this book where people are crying out, oh, what are we going to do? He announces the gospel. He announces the glory of Christ. And their response is, what do we do? And he quotes and he says, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Joel says to return to the Lord, turn to the Lord. Where true repentance is not only sorrow for that we have sinned against the Lord, but a determination to change the direction of our lives, turning from sin to God in love and dependence. You can tell that you're like those who have truly repented. If you're determined to turn your back on sin and walk to the Lord and with the Lord in loving obedience through the power that He provides you, one, one man said that our motive for heartfelt returning to the Lord is his own character. Our motive for returning to the Lord is his own character. Look at what he says. He's gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. The Old Testament frequently repeats this confession that the Lord is gracious and compassionate. Friends, I wonder, I wonder if, you can, if you can hold that, those two things up. His very power, his very might, his very hatred of sin and his compassion, and his goodness, and the safety that you can be in around him. Those two things do not contradict one another. And don't you want to be on his side when that army invades? Well, to conclude, you can see what God aims to do through Joel. Don't trust this. Don't trust that. Because it won't survive the day of the Lord. But trust in God who will come and bring true salvation as he dwells with man. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Can you endure it? Let's pray.